As, as uh, we resume our study of um, the subject of knowing God, I think it's appropriate due to the breaks that we've had in time and uh, with Christmas and, and New Year's and things of that nature, just take a moment just to kind of bring us up to speed where we left off and where we'll go from here. But uh, basically, we've addressed four questions up to date, four questions that we've asked up to this point. And uh, basically, we started with the first question of, does God really exist? Now, if we're to know God, we have to ask that very basic question, logically, obviously. Does God exist? If we're to know him, does he really exist? And so what we've looked at are six facts to consider as far as the argument that we would have to convince not only ourselves, but those around us that God truly does exist. The first thing that we saw was, you have to be able to explain where everything around us has come from. The fact that there's a material universe indicates that there has to be a cause for the, the universe to be here, and there's only basically two schools of thought. Either one is there is a creator, or two is it just kind of happened and it's here. Now, for those who would believe that it just happened and it's here, there's always a struggle in trying to explain how it got here, and the thing that, that kind of concerns me about that whole argument is how do you explain how it's got here if it was haphazard and random, and yet there is a design to the, an order to the universe that obviously goes much further beyond anything that would ever hap, happen haphazardly. Everything in life that has design and order, there's always creation or thought that precedes it. And so that argument, I don't think, holds water that it just happened to be here or it happened that way. And so as we look at that, we see the order and the design of the universe is a strong argument for the existence of God. Also, we've got to explain where man came from. And we saw that the nature of man and the complexities of man, and as we went in great detail what some of those were, we begin to understand that man is a complex being. And that to try to come up with a simple explanation that millions of years of time somehow or another we all evolved is nonsensical as you sit down and break it into its finest points. The nature of man and the, and the complexity of man indicates that there's a creator behind who we are. We also saw that one of the reasons that we, were to, that we would believe in God is the reliability of the Bible. Basically two things, archaeology and predictive prophecy are strong arguments to support the reliability and the accuracy of the Bible. How do you explain, if you don't believe in God, the person of Jesus Christ? A person who was on this earth for only 33 years and yet has had impact throughout centuries, the impact that he made with three years in a public position, never holding any type of public office, never owning anything of any significance whatsoever. He wasn't a king. He wasn't a general. He wasn't a world leader. He was nothing that we would classify as being great in the eyes of the world, and yet he's changed this world and turned it upside down in that short period of time. How does one explain who Jesus is apart from his claim that he is God in human flesh? And then the obvious argument for many of us is the fact that God has changed our lives. A personal experience, coming to know who God is, the creator of the world, coming to know that he's our creator personally, and what he has done in our own life is a strong argument as we give testimony or testify to the fact that God has changed us. Those are very strong arguments that would convince not only ourselves, but those around us, that God does exist. Well, the second question that we ask is, if God exists, then the bottom line is, how does he communicate with us? It's only natural that if God created us, that he'd want to also communicate with us. And we ask the question, how does God speak to us today? Now, we know several people or many people who would claim that God speaks to them personally. And we went through and we challenged that by considering, how do you know if God's speaking to us today? Well, basically, two things sum it all up. The whole session was summed up in, in these last days, God has spoken to us one final time through his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus is God's greatest message to mankind. 
We also know that the words and also the life of Jesus are recorded in the Word of God, which we already know is reliable and accurate based on what we had learned before that. So we can then trust what the Bible says. And so between the Bible, which records who God is, so we can get to know Him better, the things that He's done and all the plans that He has for man, and the person of Jesus Christ, we can be convinced that God truly exists. How does God speak to us? Through Jesus and also through the Bible as the Word of God in written form. We ask question number three, and that is, well, if God exists and he speaks to us through the person of Christ or he speaks to us and through the Bible, then the next question was, well, is he a real person? Who is God? One of the greatest sources of confusion in our day are those who would claim that God is nothing more than a philosophy or an idea or an energy or a force or whatever it is. The Bible teaches very clearly and we can trust it because we know it's reliable, we know that it's accurate, so therefore we can go to the Bible and find out who God is and we begin to understand that God is a personal God. That we are persons because God himself is a personal God. We have personality, we have life, we have the ability to think, to reason. We have, we, we have all of the same, as God says, He created us in His image, in His likeness. In many ways we are like God, yet we are highly limited where God is not, but we are who we are because God is who He is. And the Bible portrays God as being a personal God, a God that we can come to know in a relationship as we can relate to one another. And what a tremendous truth that is for us to understand that God is not, as Bette Miller said, distance and watching over us from far away, but God is personal and that he wants to know us in a personal way. The Bible, Jesus said as he was teaching his disciples how to pray, he said, teach, pray in this way. Say this, our Father who art in heaven, our Father, an intimate, loving relationship that we can have a relationship with God. The Bible says that for those who believe in Jesus Christ, for as many as received him, to them he gave the right. God has given us the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. That God becomes a personal God. Our Father, in Romans 8, the Spirit of God cries out within our spirit, crying out, Abba, Father. We can have a personal relationship with the God who created, created us through his Son, Jesus Christ. The question as we go through that is, is God personal to you or is he still distant? There is no reason that God should be distant to any of us. He says that he is knocking at the door of our hearts. And if anyone hears his voice and lets him in, he will come in and he will dine with us and we with him. We have an intimacy with God that's only possible through the person of Jesus Christ. Do you know him or is he still distant? Number four, we got into the question of who made God? Because if God is there and he exists, how did he get there or wherever he is? And if he's, if he's the creator of the universe, then... I, how did he get there before everything he made was there? And the answer is very simple. The Bible says in the beginning God created, meaning that he was there before whatever he made was there, and so he was there before that, and he's eternal, which means basically he created time. So the thing that stumps us or we get confused about is that God is not limited to time because he created time. So it is not inconceivable that he existed outside the realm of time if that is what he created. And the Bible says in the beginning God, God was there before it began, and he made everything happen and he caused it to come into being. So that's not that difficult to understand. All of those things lead us to this one question that we'll deal with today, and that is this. Now, if there is a God, is there more than one God? And that's a logical question. What's interesting to me is I was asked this particular question in two extremely different settings at different times in my life, and basically it's still asking the same thing. One, when I first became a Christian, I was at a, at a, at a uni local university, and we are in a history class, and I uh, just got into a small group discussion or something of that nature, and one of the guys who was in the group basically said this question. 
He said, you know, as we look at all the different historical societies on the face of the earth, when we look at the Greeks, we look at the Romans, we look at the Egyptians, we look at the, the Persians, we look at all the different cultures and all the different civilizations and the, the world empires, every one of them almost unanimously agree in their culture there was always more than one God. They recognized more than one God. And that's true. If you do a study of all those different civilizations and you look at all the gods of Rome and all the gods of Greece and all the gods of Egypt, there was a multiplicity of gods. And his question was very simple. Isn't it possible then that there is more than one God? That's a very logical question. Now, I can understand that question in light of what we were studying at the particular time. This, the next time I was asked this question was in a whole different setting, and it was when we first came to Calvary Church, and I was teaching a Fundamentals of Faith class, basically like Christianity 101, the basics of Christi the Christian faith. And there was a new Christian who was in the class as we were going through this, and he said, can you explain to me how God the Father, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit are not three gods? That's a good, I mean, is that a fair, that's a fair question. The Christian faith holds out that God is one God, yet three persons. And the question was a very simple, logical question. Can you explain to me how God the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are not three separate gods? See, now, it's a piece of cake. And, isn't it? Well, gee, I wish, because it probably would have taken, wouldn't have taken me as long to put this one together, but... You know, I, I think that we can all relate to this. If we're to truly know God, we have to have an answer, according to the Bible, what God says as far as there being one God who manifests himself in three persons. Is that even possible or is it impossible? Let me, let me just give you a, 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 an illustration. If you take from, from mathematics, if, and I know I've never been great in math, and so, but this is, I can break it down into the simplest element and I can understand this one. If you take the numeral 1 and you take 1 plus 1 plus 1, what do you get? Oh, see, see now you're so hesitant, you think it's a trick question. I can't even get you to jump in on the ones that everybody should all in unison be able to answer. 1 plus 1 plus 1 is... Thank you. There you go. Now we're rolling. One plus one plus one is three. And so if you were sitting there and you were thinking that way, you'd say the Father plus the Son plus the Spirit is three. Right? Take the same numeral one and we got a different math problem. What's one times one times one times one? One. Right? One times one times one is one. Which answer is right? Both. Correct? Would you please raise your hand if you believe that both answers are correct? Would you raise your hand, please? Thank you very much. 1 plus 1 plus 1 is 3, and 1 times 1 times 1 is 1. And both of them are correct. Now, for the purposes of what we will learn today, forget about that formula. And let's just stick to the 1 times 1 times 1. Because, as we'll see, both of those are correct. And as we go through it, the Bible teaches that God is three in one or one in three respects. Now, how do you even begin to grasp that and understand it? 
Fortunately, there's a whole bunch of other things in life that we don't understand, that we can't see with our eyes, yet we believe is true. Are we in agreement? Never seen electricity, we believe it exists. Right? Do, I mean, some of you are like, well, I'm not sure, sure yet. I still think it's a trick. But, <laughs> no, we believe that it's true, right? All right, good. And we've never, you, you, you don't really see the wind. Jesus said you can't see the wind. You can see the evidence of the wind blowing. You can't see radio or television waves, but we know that they exist because we can see the evidence of it. So basically, all we're going to do is we're going to deal with the evidence of what the Bible says, who God is, so we can get to know him better. You got it? All right, here's what we're going to do. Before we deal with how can God be three and one, let's deal with what we know is fact that you can't get around. You got your Bibles? Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 4. <clears throat> because the first thing that we have to agree upon as we go through this particular study is that the Bible teaches very clearly that God is one. The Bible teaches very clearly that God is one. So if you've got your Bibles, turn to Deuteronomy chapter 4 and we'll start there. Let's look at Deuteronomy 4, starting with verse 32. As Moses addresses the, peop- <coughs> Excuse me. the people, he says this, Indeed, ask now concerning the former days which were before you, since the day that God created man on the earth, and inquire from one end of the heavens to the other. Has anything been done like this great thing, or has anything been heard of like it? Has any people heard the voice of God speaking from the midst of the fire, as you have heard it, and survived? Or has a God tried to go to take for himself a nation from within another nation, by trials, by signs and wonders, and by war, and by a mighty hand, and by an outstretched arm, and by great terrors, as the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your very eyes. He says, To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord, He is God, and there is no other beside Him. The Lord, He is God, and there is no other beside Him. As he was dealing with the nation of Israel, he pointed out something that should have been very simple to them, and that was simply this. You know what? Have you ever seen any of these other gods do what your God did for you? Have you even heard of that? Have you ever heard of a God who separated the the sea? Have you ever heard of a God that could do the the things that God did to release you from Egypt? All the plagues and all the signs and all the wonders and everything that He did. Have you ever heard of a God that could do anything that was even close to what your God did for you? And the purpose why God did all these things was so that everybody on the face of the earth would know that there's only one God and He is that God. And it was a very logical, simple conclusion, but Moses said sometimes we need to go back to the beginning and remember. And he said, you know what? And don't forget, He's also the God that created everything. Did you ever see a God like that? The civilization of Egypt had many gods. They believed there were many, many gods, a multiplicity of gods. And as they looked around, there were altars and there was different worship going on to all these different gods for all the different things they claimed to be able to do. And so he needed to remind the people that, you know what, don't buy into this, this false teaching of the culture that you live in 
there's only one God. There's not many gods. Flip ahead to Deuteronomy chapter 6, look at verse 4. If you're Jewish or know those who are, this is a verse that they're very familiar with. Deuteronomy 6, 4 says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. What? The Lord is one. There is no other God. There's no other gods. There's only one God. But the Bible teaches clearly that the God who is God is only one God, not many gods. God is one. What's fascinating as you go through this is, he goes on and says this, And you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your soul and with all of your might. You see what he said? Since, and I like this because it makes life a lot simpler for us, since there's only one God, we can risk giving Him all of our love and all of our strength and all of our hearts and all of our mind. We can risk doing that because there ain't no other gods but one God. See, there's, you know, the world we live in and different cultures that believe in a multiplicity of gods are always trying to spread themselves to try to cover all the bases. Like in Acts chapter 17, when Paul said to the people of Greece, Oh, I see that you believe in many gods. And you got an altar to every god. And then you also got another altar that says to the great unknown god in case there was another god that you missed. And so you're running yourself ragged trying to please all these different gods because you're not sure which one is the real one. And so therefore you've got to make sure you divide up all your time and energy and effort and your mind, your soul and your heart. You've got to divide them up in little pieces so that you don't upset any of these gods in case you missed the real one. I love what the Bible says. There's only one god and you don't have to worry about that. You can just devote your whole heart, mind, soul and strength to him because there is no other gods. Don't you love that? And you know what's interesting? As many times as I've heard that, the greatest commandment is to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. I never really put the two and two together. The fact that you know why we can do that, because he's the only God there is. I like that. It simplifies it. I'm a simple kind of guy. I just need to know. Is that, okay, that's it. That's the way it's supposed to be. Well, then that's what you do. See, as you go through it, Jesus in Mark 12, 29 responded to the same question when the scribe came to him and said, what's the greatest commandment? You know what he said? What? Hear, O Israel, and know this. The Lord your God is one. And you're to love Him with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's the greatest commandment. And the second one was that you love your neighbor as yourself. And so Jesus explaining to them that, you know what? God is one. Give Him your undivided everything. I like that. And as we go through it, we begin to realize how important that is. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 8, 4 through 6, we, we read this. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world, and there is no God but one. There's only one God. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, and we'll explain that in a minute, yet for us, there is but one God. I like that, because what the Apostle Paul is saying, you know what, in the world that we live in, people have many gods. Whether it's the God of money, the God of health, the God of sex, the God of drugs, the God of material possessions, whatever their God is, whatever it is that they worship, he says, you know, there are many gods, small g, small l, many lords. There are many things that run people's lives that we worship. He said, but as for God's people, there's only one God. And no other God shall ever come before him. And he says, yet for us there's one God, the Father from, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is also but one Lord, Jesus Christ, now notice, through whom all things came 
and through whom we live. The Father created all things and for whom we live. And yet Jesus, it also says, created all things and through whom we live. Interesting. We'll get back to that in a second. Kind of log that in. But the Bible also says in James 2.19, you believe that there's one God. Good. I like that. That's kind of like, good. That's good. You know, because there is. And that's good. I'm glad you got that down. But you know what? Even the demons believe that and they shudder. See, the, the demons of hell are smarter than a lot of people that I know. They know there's only one God. And God says, you believe that. That's good. But even demons believe there's only one God. Problem is, there's more to it. And we'll explain why in a minute. Because, you see, if there's only one God, then there's only one plan for salvation. There's only one plan of that one God to make people right with God. In Romans 3, 29 and 30, listen to these words. He said, the Apostle Paul writes, Or is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also, since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith, and the uncircumcised will be justified through faith. You see what he said? Now, this is real important as we get into this. If there's only one God, and he has only one plan, and there's only one way to be made right with God, it's critical that we understand that. Because we live in a culture that wants to try to define God and put God into our own terms. We live in a culture that wants to create our own God. We want to be able to say, well, this is the God I believe in, and I believe that this is His plan for my life. Rather than understanding there is but one God, and He's the God of all people. Interesting thing happened once, uh, not too long ago in the NFL. There, there was a, a movement, of, kind of a black Muslim movement that was going on. And uh, basically their recruiting tactic was, was simply this. They were going to the, the, the African-American players that were on the teams and basically saying that Christianity was the God of white people and that Islam was the God of the blacks. And that was the, the tactic that was used to recruit people into Islam. And see, what they were doing was what many groups try to do, and that is to isolate God, define Him in their own terms, rather than to say that the Bible teaches this. There is but one God, and He's the God of all people. He's the God of African Americans. He's the God of Caucasians. He's the God of Asians. He's the God of every race, every color, every creed. He's the God of every, quote, religion. And let me explain that as we go through it. There is only one God, period. And He's got one plan for man, period. And the plan is simply this, that we are justified or made right, we're made right to God through Christ, through faith. We believe that there's one God. We believe that He has one plan. We believe that His plan is the person of Jesus Christ and the work that He did on the cross. And we put our trust and faith in that one plan because there's one God and there's no other way. We live in a culture that tries to accommodate everybody's, quote, religious beliefs. As long as everybody believes in God, we got people who claim to believe in God. Well, what God is that that you believe in? How many gods do you believe in? Well, there's only one God. Well, which God is that? We got prayer breakfast all across the country with people, you know, we got Buddhists coming in and they start their prayer, and then we got Christians coming in, and we got Muslims coming in, we got all these people because we want to accommodate all these different religious groups, all in, all in the effort to save, but we can all learn to get along and believe in God. Well, which God is that? There's only one God. 
Which God are you talking about? And we need to be able to define who He is. And that's the, the struggle with knowing God. We need to know who that God is. Either the Bible is right about what it tells us as far as who God is, or the Bible is wrong, and you have to explain where it's wrong, because we know it's reliable based on predictive prophecy and archaeology and all the other facts that go into helping us to be convinced that the Bible is accurate. But you either believe in the Bible or you don't believe in the Bible, and if the Bible is wrong, show us where it's wrong so we can believe what is correct. But if the Bible is right, then let me show you what the Bible says about this one God whom we can't seem to identify. What happened in Rome was everybody had their idea about God, so, oh, well, let's all learn to get along, and we'll just let you believe anything you want to believe, and we won't have one God anymore that we believe in. We'll have a multiplicity of God so that we don't offend anybody, and that's the direction this country has been moving for the last 25 to 30 years. And we've got to be careful. Why? Because there's only one God, and he's a jealous God. And his jealousy will consume us like a consuming fire. We need to identify who he is so we don't put him on some back shelf along with every other man-made God and just put him up there with him and say, choose whichever one you want. We need to understand what the Bible teaches as far as who God is if we're in, or in order to know him. So anyway, as we go through it, there's no way we can get around the fact that the Bible teaches that God is one. Now we'll go through and take a look at what the Bible... I'll give you five facts that deal with this whole issue of, well, what's the nature of God? Number one, let's look at this. The name of God is a plural noun. I'm just going to go through these real quick because i got some other things that I really want to spend some time on. But the nature of God, the name of God is a plural noun. Now let me explain what that means. In the Hebrew, the word God is Elohim, and the words can also mean God in a singular form rather than the plural, but also it could be in a plural form. So when you go through the Bible and you begin to read in the Old Testament where it talks about God, it could be talking about God in the plural form or God in a singular form. As it said, know this, Israel, and hear this, there's only God is one. But it can talk about God in, in, in a plural form as well. So as we go through this, it becomes difficult to understand is there many gods or just one God? And you can argue from this basis that God, in some ways, is more than one God. And he is. Give me an example. In Hebrew, the word for one is the same word where it says, know this, that God is one. The same word, Hebrew word, is used in Genesis 2.24 when it talks about how a man shall leave his father and his mother, shall cleave or cling to his wife, and the two shall become what? One flesh. That same word is used. So we know that there, in some ways, that... Two can be one. You understand what I'm saying? I mean, because it's, that's what the Bible teaches. In some ways, two can be one. And so what we can argue from that is, in some ways, one can also be more than one. And that's what we're going to get into as we go through it. Now, the plural, and that should be pronouns, plural pronouns are also used for God. One of the first Bible studies I did after I became a Christian, we were reading through the book of Genesis. In Genesis 1.26, it says this, Then God said, Let us make man in our image. Now, there are those who would believe that somehow or another God formed a committee, you know, to create man. But that's not it at all. And as you go through it, in Genesis 3.22, it says, And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us. The Lord said, come, let us go down. When it talked about going down into Sodom, to Sodom and Gomorrah, let us go down. Well, who's us? Who's the us that God is talking about? Obviously, the Bible clearly teaches that God is one, and yet we also learn that God is more than one. 
Don't forget the formula. One times one times one times is one, right? So don't forget that now. Because, I mean, otherwise it can get real confusing again. So as we go down through it, he says, whom shall I send? So as we go through these things, we begin to recognize that, yes, the Bible clearly teaches that God is one, and yet we're also dealing with some very difficult things here, and that the, the Bible also teaches that God is more than one. Okay? God's name is also applied to more than one person in the same text. Listen to this. Psalm 45, 6 through 7, we read this. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You love righteousness and you hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. Did you pick up on that? God, your God. Well, wait a minute. The first God has a scepter and a kingdom. This God also has a God who has anointed him above all others. Jesus used this context when he was trying to explain something to the Pharisees when he said in Matthew twenty-two forty-one through 46, he said, well, wait a minute now. How can the Lord be the son of David, but David also calls him my Lord? You follow that? He's saying, wait, so the name of God is used more than once in the same context, indicating that there is more than just one God, because God, you're God. Well, how can that be? Well, we'll go through. Now, here's a critical thing, and this is one thing that, that every one of us should understand. Because the Bible teaches that three persons are recognized as God. Three persons are recognized as God. Now, contrary to what many people think, there are not many passages in the Bible that indicate that God the Father is really God. You follow this? The Bible assumes certain things. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God, he doesn't take the time to explain that he exists. He doesn't take the time to explain anything other than the fact that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But there is a passage that you need to be aware of that will help you understand that God, the Father, is called God in Scripture. And in John six twenty seven, we read this. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life which the Son of Man will give you, because God, the Father, has set his seal on him. Obviously, the Father is called God in that particular passage, because God, the Father, set his seal on him. So we understand that the Father is called God. The Son of the Father is called God in Hebrews 1.8, which is also a quotation from Psalm 45, which we already talked about. So as we get into it, now there will be certain religious groups that will say this, but Jesus is never called God in the Bible. See, they go back to, I believe in God, but I don't believe that Jesus is God. And yet the Bible says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word, what? Was God. Then it goes on to tell us, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So for those, quote, religious groups out here who would say we all believe in the same God, the only difference is that I don't believe that Jesus is God, but can't we all just learn to agree on the fact that there is a God? My answer is no, that we can't. And the reason for that is very simple, because Jesus said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father, because I and the Father am one. So now if you really want to get a headache, think about what he's saying. That God, the Father, is God. That Jesus Christ, the Son, is God. And then Jesus says that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, for I and the Father am one. 
So for the religious group that says, I can believe in God, but I can't believe that Jesus is God, I say, then you don't believe in the same God because Jesus claims to be the same as the Father in the fact that he is God. You follow that? All right. Now, as we go through it a little further, we go through it and see that, you know what? It says, and the word became flesh dwelt among us. Jesus is the word in Romans 9, 5. The Messiah is called the eternally blessed God. In Acts 20, 28, Paul instructs the elders at the church of Ephesus. He says this, shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Well, wait a minute. Now, God the Father never shed his blood, but Jesus shed his blood. And it says, purchase, he said, and he purchased or shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Well, who shed his blood? Jesus shed his blood. But what did he say? But Paul says, but shepherd the church of God, the church that he has shed his blood for. Interesting. In Acts chapter 5, we read this about the, the person of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's also called God. Peter asked Ananias, he says, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? He goes on and says, You have not lied to men, but you've lied to God. What's the purpose of all of it? We need to understand it. Because there's a whole bunch of different groups all around us that don't believe this, and they try every way that they can gymnastically to get around it. I had a guy who worked for me one time who was a, was a Mormon, and he did not believe that Jesus was God. He believed he was one of many gods, although they don't say that. He says he became a god. I said, what do you mean, a god, one of many gods? Well, yeah. Well, how do you become a god? Well, and then he gave me a whole bunch of spiel about how you become a god. And, I, and I, that was a whole different subject, but, you know, as you question him on how can you become a god, and then he goes through it, you know, you've got to live a good life, you've got to give 10%, you've got to do all these things. They say, well, can you be a liar and become god? Become a god? Well, absolutely not. Well, what if I could show you that Jesus claimed to be the God, the one and only God? He said, because when he addressed the Pharisees, he said, before Abraham existed, I am. I am who? I am God, the eternal God, the God of your fathers. And he said, go back to Exodus 3 and take a look at it, because when Moses came up to Pharaoh and said, I'm going to go, you say, go let your people out. And God says, yeah, go do it. And Moses said, well, who should I say sent me? In what name? The power of the name. He said, tell him I am. Jesus said the same thing before Abraham existed. I am. And you know what the Pharisees did? They picked up rocks. They wanted to kill him because they knew that he had made himself one with God. Because there's only one God and he was trying to take the same name as God and they wouldn't allow that to happen. But Jesus said that he is God. So anyway, we're talking to this guy. He worked for me. He's a Mormon. And he'll go through this thing about, well, how do you become a God? And he went through all this different stuff and said, well, you know what? But the Bible clearly teaches that Jesus is God in human flesh. Well, I don't believe that. And so as you begin to show him all the different passages in the Bible, he says, well, how do you explain that? You know what his answer was? Well, uh, I can't explain it. I'm going to go talk to my... What do you mean you've got to talk to your bishop? Well, I, I, I don't understand. I've, they've never, I've never seen these. We've never read these. We've never studied these. So, okay. Well, needless to say, you know, he never came back to discuss it anymore because you can't give answers to that. It says what it says, and it's clearly understandable that the Bible teaches there's three persons that are recognized as God. See, and that's where we start to cut the line. That's where we start to differentiate between all the people that say, you know what, but I believe in God. I know people and you know people who will agree with you that they'll believe there is a God, but they do not want to know him any more than that, and they certainly don't want to identify him any closer than that, because what they begin to get into is, you know what, if you claim to believe in God, you must also claim to believe that Jesus Christ is God, because he claimed that he and the Father were one. If you've seen, the, if you've seen him, you've seen the Father. 
Well, I don't know if I'm ready to believe in that Jesus thing. Oh, okay. Well, what exactly are you ready to believe? I just like to believe in the God that doesn't, you know, we can all make him to be anything that he wants to be. Because that way we can all learn to get along. We can all learn that we don't have to disagree with one another. But it's important that we understand why it's important. Three persons are set forth as one God and not three gods, which we've already seen. Three persons are set forth as one God, not three gods. There's not three separate gods. And so the point is this. You can't choose to believe, I believe in God the Father, but I won't believe in Jesus Christ, and I won't believe in the Holy Spirit. Or you got people who say, well, I believe in the Holy Spirit, but I don't believe in Jesus Christ, and I don't believe in God the Father, or I believe in Jesus, but it doesn't really matter whether I believe in the Father and whether I believe in the Spirit. See, and as we go through this, it becomes critical to understand why these things are important. And we'll talk about that in a second. Let me do a little artwork for you. Because, you know, this is one of those talents that I've had hidden for so long, and I think it's time that we unveil it. But here's how it goes. If you need an illustration, because one of the hardest things is to try to illustrate the triunity of God, or as many call the trinity of God. So if we take this triangle, that's going to be really crude, but if we take this triangle... And we say, this represents God. There's only one God. We've learned that already. God is one. These, this triangle represents all the attributes, all the characteristics of God. Now, if we take three circles and we put it in the triangle, then this will help us to understand what the Bible teaches, that God is one. One times one times one is one. There is only one God. And yet the Bible clearly teaches that there are three persons set forth in the Bible as being God. And we take each circle would represent the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, if we take one of those circles and we put a little square box around it, this would help us to understand that only the person of Jesus Christ has ever taken on human form or human appearance or has come in bodily form. So you've got the Father, you've got the Son, and you've got the Holy Spirit, three persons, one God. Same attributes are attributed to each person that is manifested in the Bible, as explained in the Bible, and yet Jesus is different only in the fact that he has taken on human form and outward appearance so that we can begin to understand. See, this is why God's final message to man is the person of Jesus Christ. Because what we did not understand or know about God through what we read, we were able to see in human flesh who God was so that it would make more sense to the sensual or the, or, or the, the physical world that we live in. The, world, the word became flesh and, we, and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory, glory of the only, as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and full of truth. What we could not understand about God, God took the time to manifest himself in the person of Jesus Christ. He also became flesh so that he could die for our sins and shed his blood because spirit cannot shed blood because there is no blood associated with spirit. There is no flesh to nail to a tree. There is no flesh that could be nailed to the cross. There is no blood that could be shed outside of the fact God had to take on human appearance. But the Bible clearly teaches that God is one yet manifests himself in three different ways. Now what's interesting about this, and you may like this too because if you thought that was good, I like that cartoon. Here's a guy doing a series in, on, uh, in Genesis on, on Noah. You bet it's a gift. Wait till you see what he does with Lamentations. So anyway, whenever we get to that, I'm sure you'll really appreciate my artwork. Um, okay, here, let, let's wrap, wrap everything up on this. I had somebody ask me, said, all oh, this is interesting, right? And, and, you know, and it may be challenging and, and it may give you a headache and it may be still difficult to understand. But we've got to ask ourselves a question. Why is it important to believe what the Bible teaches as far as the triunity of God. 
that God is one, yet three persons, why is that so important? Can't I just pick and choose like we talked about? Let me give you a couple of reasons. And the first one will probably give you a headache. But it, the triunity of God reflects the eternal love of God. I mean, if you stop and think about this just in simple form, if God's love demands an object to be loved, and God existed before everything he created, including us, the point was, well, how could God love to his fullest capacity of loving if there was no object to love? Well, if you understand what the Bible teaches as far as God being one, yet three persons, we understand very simply that God, and when it talks about who, that man has become like us, or will make him in our image, in our likeness, you know, it becomes very easy to understand that God would have the capacity to love because God the Father could love the Son, and we know that God loved, the Father loved the Son, and God would love the Holy Spirit, the Father would love the Spirit, just as Jesus loved the Spirit and also loved the Father. And the Holy Spirit loves the Son and also loves the Father. And so there is a dimension there that God, His eternal love, would have an object to love and that God would love Himself, but with three persons manifested as one God, there is a way that you can eternally show the love that God has shown to us because of His love that He has for the Son, His love that He has for the Spirit, the Spirit's love for the, for the Son and for the Father, etc. Number two... And the important thing is, and we already mentioned, is that the triunity of God is important because it helps reveal who God truly is. For us to know God, we have had to see Him in person. And for those who were alive at the time, they recognized that Jesus was different than any human being that they'd ever met in their life. There was something different about Jesus. The things that he did, the things that he said, what he had taught, people looked at him and marveled at his teaching as one with authority. They marveled at the fact that he claimed to be one with God. They marveled at, at the miracles and the signs and the wonders that God used to, to, to show us, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. They marveled at this, and the triunity of God helped us to understand and reveals to us who God truly is. That's why as you go through it, you need to understand, and this is probably the most important reason why we must believe what the Bible teaches as far as the triunity of God. And that is this. Without the triunity of God, without the Father, without the Son, without the Holy Spirit, there can be no redemption for sin. Think about this. Redemption is made possible only by one God who manifests himself in three persons. And let me give you a simple explanation for that. God the Father so loved this world that he sent his only begotten son. How did Jesus Christ appear on this earth? The Bible teaches that the Father sent the Son. The Bible teaches that the Holy Spirit was the agent that brought about the conception of Jesus Christ in the womb of Mary. The Bible teaches that without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission of sin. As we begin to make sense of all of this, we begin to understand that if the Father does not send the Son, the Son does nothing on His own initiative because Jesus said, all that I do, I do to please my Father. The Father sends the Son. Jesus in the garden said, if there's any way that this cup could pass over me, O Father, show me the way. And He said, but not my will be done, but Your will be done. The will of God the Father was to bring about the salvation of mankind through the per person of Jesus Christ. Without the Father, the Son does not come to the earth. 
Without Jesus Christ, there is no forgiveness of sin because it's in His blood that was shed for us that we find forgiveness and acceptance to God. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Who's well pleased? God the Father's well pleased. Why? Because it's His plan. There's only one God and one plan. And the plan involved the Father sending the Son so that the Son would die for the sins of man. Now you say, but what work did the Holy Spirit have in all of this? The Bible clearly teaches this. Not only did the Holy Spirit, was He the agent to bring about the conception of Jesus in the womb of Mary, but it's the Spirit of God who regenerates man. It's the Spirit of God who quickens or makes alive the, the person who says, I put my faith and trust in Christ. Without the work of the Holy Spirit in a person's life, there is no way you can be born again. You see, Jesus said when He was talking to Nicodemus, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And so you have people say, but I believe in God. But do you believe that Jesus Christ is God in human flesh? Because Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And so you cannot separate God, the Father, from Jesus Christ, the Son. And I have people say, but I put my faith and trust in Jesus. Do I really need to believe that, that there is three persons? That God is three persons and yet He's one? Do I really need to believe that? And that's a good question. I put my faith in Jesus Christ and it's through faith that we're saved, not by works. But my question is, but you understand that Jesus and God, the Father, are one. You cannot separate one from the other. They're one in the sense that there's more than one, but there's only one God. And if you don't believe that God the Father sent Jesus Christ the Son, Jesus said to the Pharisees, you know what? You're the Father, your Father the devil. Because if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Because I and the Father am one. You can't believe in me and not believe in God the Father. And you can't even claim to believe in me unless the Spirit of God indwells you because it's the Spirit of God that testifies with your spirit that you're a child of God. It's the Spirit of God who awakens us or quickens us and we're born again of water and by the Spirit, the agency and the work of the Spirit of God. So when I have somebody ask me, do I have to believe in the triunity of God? I say very simply this, if you don't, you can't be saved. It's impossible. And the only way you know whether you put your faith and trust in Christ is the Spirit of God bears witness with your spirit that you're a child of God. And that's why the Spirit of God can make you cry out, Abba, Father, God, I know I'm forgiven because your Spirit indwells me and He's teaching me about you. He's telling me that you're my Father. He's assuring me that if I die today, I'll be with you. And that's why you have to believe in the triunity of God. Because that's what the Bible teaches. Is it hard to understand? Yes. But is it easy to see that Scripture teaches it? Absolutely. And if one times one times one is one, and I believe that, I don't understand that, I never will. But I'll tell you this, anytime I disagree with it and I try to give a different answer, I'd get an F. So just because you don't understand it and you want to try to believe a different answer, let me tell you something, you'll get an F if you do not believe that Jesus is God in human flesh who came to this earth to die for your sins. Because you cannot separate the Father from the Son because the Father gave the Son and the Son gives us Spirit, and the Spirit gives us life. And that gift goes on. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this opportunity to try to tackle a difficult concept, but yet one that you clearly teach in your Word. Help us to be people of faith who not only put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ for our salvation or the forgiveness of our sins, but to be people who also put our faith and trust in your Word and believe it unconditionally. God, we just thank you that your spirit indwells us, that he teaches us the things of God. He reveals to us who you are. He teaches us about Jesus and the things that he did and reminds us of the things that he said. And we just thank you that, God, you so loved this world that you sent your son, that whoever would believe in him 
would not perish but have everlasting life. And we thank you as we put our faith and trust in Christ that you send your spirit to indwell us, to quicken us, to cause us to become born again into the kingdom of God. And it's your spirit who reminds us that we are children of God to those who believe in the name of Jesus Christ. And we just thank you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.